Hello. Welcome to another episode of At Length. I'm your host, Steve Scher. Thanks for tuning in. This time, we're going to consider who we are and where we came from, we being humanity. Harvard geneticist David Reich is at the cutting edge of answering that question. Genomics is as critical to our understanding of human development, he writes, as language, archaeology, or writings. Perhaps even more so, the data is replicable, the science is hard, and, as he writes in his book, it's moving very fast. Reich is one of the pioneers in the field of analyzing ancient human DNA. He starts his book by writing that some of the notions he presents could well be out of date by the time we read it. That's how fast these new discoveries are emerging as labs around the world examine the genome of ancient humans. He brings readers up to date with the latest science in his new book, Who We Are and How We Got Here, Ancient DNA and the New Science of the Human Past. I interviewed David Reich while I was driving across the country with a friend of mine. We listened to the book while we were crossing New York State and on into New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine. It was interesting to listen to the book while we were passing these huge granite mountains. It made the notions of geologic time that Reich was talking about very concrete. I spoke to Reich from my car parked outside a coffee shop on the border between New Hampshire and Vermont. So if there's any problem with the audio quality, let's blame it on their Wi-Fi. I appreciate them letting me use it. I'll tell you what, I'll just, I'll just jump right into it because I, I liked this phrase and I know it's sort of tells everything in just one sentence. It's your phrase from towards the end of the book. The genome revolution has taught us that great mixtures of highly divergent populations occurred repeatedly. That's sort of a new and expansive idea for the way we think of the human evolution, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think that there was prior to the last really five years, I think that there was a assumption that the time today, it's a more complicated place than the past and the big mixtures of populations we see around us today are unusual things but what's become very clear from looking at genetic data from ancient populations which we can now do over the last few years is that in the past there were also mixtures of very different populations and that's been true throughout the history we've been able to study i've been listening to the book on a drive that i've been taking across the country with my friend and i and we've been just the last few hours, really, we've been crossing through New York and Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. And I look at these in the mountains. And you look at these uh, big granite mountains or big massifs in, in geologic time. You, and, and then I'm listening to this book, and the book becomes the history of humanity in geologic time. Though I know it's not, you know, it's not 350 million years, but it is... A million years, 350,000 years, and it's a, it's, it's a remarkable way to think of our, our evolution. What's in my mind is really the question about how the great diversity of human people, human populations around the world that we see around us every day got to be the way it is today. And so when you see the world, the diversity of the world's peoples, the question immediately arises how those differences arose over time and the path that people took through space and time in order to get to where they are today. And so this book is about that time period over which the patterns we see around us developed. You're looking at people and, and getting down to the DNA. What is it that you're doing in your lab that is unique in the way we are now looking at the human story? What's happened since 
really 2010 and accelerated beginning in 2014-15 is that it's become possible to get uh, to sequence the whole genome from ancient individuals and to quality similar to what we get from modern individuals. And that really makes it possible to ask in, in great detail how ancient individuals related to each other and to present-day people. And with that kind of data, uh, we can we can answer lots of questions that were not possible to answer before. So that's why so many changes in our understanding of who we are are happening right now. How is this different from the breakthroughs we heard about 10 years ago where, where, where scientists were looking at matrilineal mitochondrial DNA? First discovery that we all share a common female ancestor um, and that we could trace how far back in time she lived were very interesting. Um, and But that's actually only one of our lineages, the one that the mitochondrial DNA is passed down to you from your mother and her eggs. And men, men uh, fathers don't pass down their mitochondrial DNA, which are the DNA contained in the energy centers of your cell. And so the DNA that you carry is that of your mother and she and, and then it's of her mother and her mother going back in time. And so it's tracing the lineage of mothers all the way going back in time. And while that's a very interesting lineage, it's only one of your 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 paths of ancestry. It's not it's your mother's mother's mother, not your mother's mother's father or your father's mother's mother's. What looking at the whole genome does is that it allows you to, which is 200,000 times bigger, is it allows you to trace all those paths. The metaphor or the reality of what was used was we all descended, we all humans on the planet today descended from one mother, one Eve. Is that accurate? I don't think it really is accurate. What's accurate? What are you actually looking at on that genome that lets you see the patterns of evolution? What happened with modern Eurasians and Neanderthals? Um, one of the things I describe in the book was this breakthrough findings in 2010 uh, that followed the sequencing sequencing of the Neanderthal genome and another archaic genome, that Neanderthals, these archaic humans who lived in Europe from about 400,000 to 40,000 years ago, interbred with the ancestors of all non-Africans. And so we didn't think that that was true before this time. The, all the evidence seemed to be pointing the other way. Um, but... Um, uh, when we got the Neanderthal genome sequence, we compared it to non-Africans and to African people, and we found that it was definitely closer to non-Africans, and we proved that that was due to gene flow from Neanderthals into modern humans. Um, so that was in, uh, that, that that history and those findings are described in, in the book and really changed our understanding of the past. Once we had done that, we found that another archaic human from which we obtained a sequence, Denisovans, um, interbred with the ancestors of New Guineans. You use the phrase archaic humans. Who are these archaic humans? You know, modern humans really only appear in the skeletal record of Eurasia about 300,000 years ago. Um, and so um, before that time, um, uh, there were just uh, humans who didn't look like us in terms of their skeletons. Uh, those are archaic humans. Humans have not always lived in Africa, uh, only lived in Africa for the last two million years. For the whole almost two million years, there have been humans both in Eurasia and in Africa, but they were mostly archaic humans, Homo erectus, Homo hydrobergensis. And when modern humans spread out of Africa and the Near East 50 to 100,000 years ago, they encountered those archaic humans. You also talk about uh, ghost archaics or ghost uh, genome because there are, there are many gaps to be filled, correct? Yes. So. When every time we've obtained a new genome sequence from an archaic human, it's uncovered um, 
uh, mixture events we didn't know about before in uh, Eurasia. But we, of course, Africa is our homeland as a species. Um, and we uh, haven't obtained any archaic genomes yet from Africa. It would be no surprise if um, when those sequences are obtained, they would reveal additional uh, previously unknown uh, mixture events. So it's very exciting. So the idea of a ghost population is very interesting. Um, one population that we have represented today in relatively unmixed form and another population that is, doesn't exist in unmixed form anymore. So that's very exciting because we've reconstructed statistically a population that existed, must have existed in the past, but we don't have data from it directly. One of the things that ancient DNA has done is it's followed up the, the statistical discovery of ghost populations by finding um, actual genetic data from them. And you find that in the genome, you you pull the uh, DNA out from the from the bone in the middle ear, which is the least uh, likely to be uh, infected by other DNA or by bacteria, and that's where you're able to start looking for or tracing the ghost populations as well as the whole human story. That's right. Yeah. Well, when you're when you're talking about a population, what are we talking about? Are we talking about ten thousand individuals? Are we talking about a family unit of four? When we talk about these evolutionary steps, are we talking about just families meeting each other? I think that what we're talking about are groups that have diverged substantially from each other. And that's sort of what we mean by a population. We use population in various ways for groups that are defined either by time or geography or by uh, genetic similarity to each other um, over multiple samples that we have from it, perhaps spread over space and time. So we use the term in a flexible way, and we try to define every time we use the term how we mean to use it. But um, we actually sometimes don't know how large populations are. So an example of this is the population that people the Americas, uh, or the main population that people the Americas. We know that it was a relatively small number of founding lineages, but was that carried by 10 people moving a very large distance over you know, one or two generations? Or was it by 100 people moving... Uh, smaller distances over tens of generations, or was it a thousand people over very small distance over hundreds of generations? We just don't know. You've seen the reaction you've gotten to your books, mostly positive, but then some people uh, are, are, are curious about how you view that notion of race. I think there was even one, uh, one reviewer. He's unsure whether the combination of Reich's directness and his, his quote, PC Pablum on race realism is due to the need to maintain funding from his sponsors or a genuine mental struggle between reality and ideology. I thought I'd let you just respond to that. Well, race is a, is a social construct that almost is a cliche, but it's actually true. It's, it's in, in our country and in many places in the world, uh, groups are defined based on how they're socially perceived and perceive themselves. Um, and people classify them. They're sometimes correlated to ancestral differences and often very badly correlated to ancestral differences. They, they, in, a, in the US, for example, they're meaningful um, and, uh, and socially in terms of how people classify them, people use those categories to, for all sorts of things. I think that that's, that's something that people think about when they think about variation amongst human populations. They, it's, 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 it, it, people wonder how that's related to the classifications we deal with day to day socially. Um, so, um, so that's something I discuss in my book. You do. And what's your answer? How should people think about it? Well, race is a social construct. 
um, and uh, has changed over time. Uh, and what it is today is very different in the United States from what it was 100 years ago and then 200 years ago again. However, it does correlate to some of the ancestry differences in some cases. So that, for example, African-Americans, if you say someone is self-declared African-American right now, it means pretty something, it's quite predictive about people's ancestry, whereas if someone says Latino, it's not very predictive. Um, and so um, those differences reflect a fair amount of time that's elapsed since human populations have separated from common ancestors. And so I felt that one of my responsibilities in talking about the origin of human variation and what we do and don't know about it was to provide some pe people who read the book with the tools to think about how that picture of what we now know about human variation relates to the social picture around them and does or does not relate. And so I talk about that in one of the chapters in my book. Do you feel that the people who have reacted to it have understood what you're saying? I think that my writing about this has been helpful. Um, the, not just uh, the book, but uh, parts of it were reprinted in the newspapers. Um, and I think that I'm very happy that I brought these issues up because I think that the way that people were talking about this was not grounded in scientific fact. And so I think that in order for people to fight racism and in order for people to uh, work against inappropriate treatment of people on the basis of ancestry or social classification, it's important not to make mistakes in terms of understand, uh, in terms of thinking about um, human differences. And so I, I felt it was important to, to discuss that. So people have objected to even bringing up these issues. Um, and I think that it's important to bring them up because not bringing them up and just staying silent about them um, just invites uh, much worse. But what do you mean in terms of, you know, you mentioned how it was mis the, some ideas in the past have been misused by Nazis, other people white supremacists, supremacists in general. How do you get people not to wrap your science up, your rigorous science up in those prejudices? One of, one of the things I make clear again and again in the book is that the genetic data, as we're finally reading out the reality of how people are related to each other, is we're again and again surprised about what we thought we knew about the past. So we might have once thought that the first, the only big migration into Europe uh, over the last 10,000 years was the one that brought farming, but that was definitely wrong. We might have thought that first migration into uh, the open Pacific uh, 3,500 years ago was people with ancestry like that it's seen in the open Pacific and uh, the uh, today, but it's not true. There were multiple movements. And so the genetics has again and again showed us that we were wrong about our previous understanding of the past. And my response to this as a person studying this this topic has been really to lose all faith in my own guesses and my instincts and what I learned in school and from my friends and colleagues um, and reading about what the nature of the world is. And so, for example, in terms of the structure of human populations, I think it's uh, surely the case that there are very modest but real average differences amongst populations and different traits. Um, but I actually think we don't even know the first thing about even what direction those differences are because we haven't measured them accurately because of, they're so culturally contextualized, how people learn, how people grow, what people's health is. And so while there's a few things we know about, really, I'm, really I think we don't even know what the direction is. And so I, I wouldn't trust uh, most of the studies that have been done so far. 
you said you did the genetic study on uh, uh, genetics on on uh, health and diseases in populations. One of the things you looked at was the um, the way plagues, the bubonic plague, uh, affected populations of people over time. Are there other diseases that show up in the genome that tell you about how uh, populations might have been affected by different diseases? Yeah, one of the incredible things about ancient DNA is that sometimes we can get DNA from the pathogens. We get DNA from someone who had bubonic plague, black death, um, and if we get DNA from their teeth, it's now been shown that you can often get the plague pathogen uh, from someone who died of the plague. Um, in the same way, people have gotten DNA from people with tuberculosis, with hepatitis, um, and um, and other other diseases. So it's pretty exciting to be able to study the pathogens that killed people um, long ago, compare the pathogens at that time to the ones that are around now. So we have these archaic uh, humans moving out of Africa and around Africa and into Eurasia where evolution continues to take place. And then we have the Neanderthals and we have the Denosovans, Denosovans. Then we have modern humans. When, when they encounter each other, and, and then you have hybridization and changes in populations and then uh, changes in, in the structure of, of their bodies and their arms and their legs and all that stuff. What, are they, what, has actually, what, is, what do you mean when you say they encounter each other? What's actually happening? It, it's, we don't get to witness it directly. All we get to do is witness its product, the offspring it produces through DNA. I think what we've learned from DNA is that when ancient human populations, even ones separated by hundreds of thousands of years, like Neanderthals, Denisovans, and modern humans, met each other, they tended to mix with each other again and again. Um, just a few weeks ago, uh, Svante Pavo's laboratory published DNA from a first-generation mixture of Neanderthals and Denisovans. These are two groups separated by each other for 400,000 years. And so if we're finding first-generation mixtures of Neanderthals and Denisovans and fourth to sixth-generation mixtures of modern humans and Neanderthals and 30th-generation mixtures of modern humans and Neanderthals in the very small number of, of ancient genomes we've analyzed, surely this was happening frequently. Um, and so what we know is that when different human groups encountered each other, even if they were much more different from each other than any pair of groups today, they mixed with each other. They had children together. I mean, are we talking about conquest? Well, I don't think we're trying to use a euphemism. Um, we're trying to be very cautious because there's several different interpretations. What we can be sure of is that when there's unequal mixing of men and women, that is, m men from one group are predominantly contributing to the next generation and women from the other group are con predominantly contributing to the next generation, it surely means that the interaction of the two groups when they mix was an unequal one. Differences in behavior, differences perhaps in social power. In Antioquia in Colombia, where Medellin is, we know what happened from the history books. What happened is Spanish men um, came to the Americas and they took for wives or for for partners, local women, further male migrants from Spain displaced the local males. Um, and so what you had is waves and waves of male migrants getting preferential access to locally female, local females because of the casta system that was set up by the Spanish to uh, take advantage of, of local people in the colonial system that was set up in Spain. So there was a, we know about the extreme inequality and oppression associated with that interaction, and it's manifested genetically, DNA from on the male side coming overwhelmingly from Europe and the DNA on the female side coming overwhelmingly from Native Americans. In African Americans, we see the same thing, um, although less extreme, where about on a four to one 
of the European-derived ancestry in African Americans, it comes four to one, four to one ratio from the male side, again reflecting the known history of inequality associated with the, the institution of slavery in, this, in the United States. So what's quite interesting is that we actually also see evidence of sex bias in mixture events in the deep past, in the time before writing, for example, and the mixture of farmers and hunter-gatherers in early European societies um, uh, 6,000 years ago, or in the open Pacific in the last few thousand years. And when we see this, it's evidence of inequality of different groups, and it's written in the DNA. It's kind of amazing that genetic data provides this type of information. What do we know about the mixing of the different uh, human groups, the Archaics, the Denosovans, the uh, Neanderthals, um, whatever modern humans are? We know that they mixed uh, because they produced offspring that we have DNA from, um, and they, we have produ they produced descendants who we have DNA from. But we don't know uh, something clear about the um, relative propensity of males and females from these two groups to mix with each other. And the reason is because natural selection has worked to remove segments of DNA from one population and the other, and so it's diff from from the genome. So it's difficult to just compare the X chromosome, which is mostly from women, to the rest of the genome, um, in order to learn what happened. So we just kind of it's been muddled too much. So that would be a dream to be able to learn about that, but we don't yet know how to do that. I'm not convinced we have a clear uh, picture of that. Something we might learn about in the future, though. You write in the book that it's important. And it will happen that Africa is part of this understanding of the evolution of humanity. And in part, you write, it's because you haven't just had the labs set up in Africa to look at the ancient bones of ancient Africans or archaic people living in Africa. But you do say that Africa, this huge continent, is got a wealth, I guess, a wealth of surprises yet in store for you, right? Because of how different populations have flowed across the continent over the eons? Well, I think that Africa has most of the world's diversity. Um, the diversity outside of Africa is, is almost a small subset of that within Africa. And so really most of our deep history is in Africa. And so the stories that are that about human past that exist in Africa are extremely rich, richer, you know, on a per square kilometer basis than those in any other part of the world. And so I think that really there is a tremendous amount to tell about the history of our, of our species by studying African deep history. Um, one of the points I make in the book is that, you know, Africa's kind of put on a pedestal somehow in genetic studies of the past. We all now know that we all come from Africa 50 to 100,000 years ago. And when people talk about Africa, it's as if the story ended there. You know, modern humans come out of Africa 50 to 100,000 years ago and nothing, nothing happened since. But of course, the history within Africa since that time has just been just as rich and interesting as the history outside of Africa. And that's one of the things we can learn about through DNA. The other thing you talk about is how in Eurasia, evolution continued. And then is it right to say that some of that movement of populations of archaics and moderns came back into the Near East, back into Africa, and mixed again? Yes. So there's definitely, especially into North Africa, but also into parts of East Africa, and then going all the way down to Southern Africa, there is gene flow, there's migration or, or exchange of genes from groups that ultimately originated in the Near East where farming was developed. And probably along with farming or people who knew farming and uh, pastoralism, uh, their genes came along all the way to southern Africa, too. So we have all these people mixing, and we have these archaics and, 
and Neanderthals bumping up against each other, encountering each other, what do we mean when we say this is a modern human, when we speak of it in terms of DNA? It's a great question. I think that what we mean is people whose ancestors lived in a who lived in Africa 200 to 300,000 years ago. I think that's what we mean. That's what I mean. And then the people that they encountered and uh, mixed with, those people were subsumed or wiped out by the modern peoples? I think that about 98% of the genome of most non-Africans approximately is from Africa. Modern humans is really an anatomical concept. It refers to shapes of skeletons, and all people today have that type of shape of skeleton that first began to be apparent around 300,000 years ago. People are mixtures in different proportions of different groups. Um, and it becomes a gray area, what is modern, what's archaic. And I think that's that's appropriate. What do you mean that's appropriate? Well, I mean, you know, I don't know what a modern, I, I, I think that we are partially archaic. And I think that, uh, you know, all of us in various ways, through different mixtures, um, I think that this sharp distinction between different groups is not really fully appropriate. And we should realize that we, we share genes with different populations. We, we share ancestry with different people and even with groups that, are so distanced from us that we might think that they are completely foreign. When you write about the current state of technology, you you seem not just very excited, but that there's much more that can be done and will be done. In your lab, what are you looking at in terms of advances? Well, um, I think that right now um, it's very clear how powerful this technology is. So we're excited about the prospect of applying it really more broadly all through the world and uh, through across the times that can be interrogated by this methodology. So. You know, we're interested in being involved in building an atlas of human variation, past and present, and drawing maps of migrations or gene exchanges across groups and trying to see how population sizes changed over time, trying to see how frequencies of mutations whose functions we know changed over time. So those are the types of things we'd like to learn more about. In history and in prehistory, right? Yes, that's right. And and both of those seem both of those understandings like short term, the last 10,000 years and long term the last 100 to million years those there's the technology is there to start to unravel this I think so definitely that's kind of does that does that does that just excite you does it also is there anything that makes you a little nervous about that at all uh, I'm just excited that we can begin to do this. So, I'm, uh, I mean, it's a big job, but, you know, I think it's exciting to have the technology just like having a telescope for the first time allowed us to explore planets and solar systems and, uh, you know, galaxies that we couldn't see without telescopes. So this technology allows us to explore the unknown you know, universe of how people are related to each other and were related to each other in the past. So it's an incredibly exciting prospect, and I'm just excited to be involved in that. Let me end by asking a, a story you told. You were in Israel when there were demonstrations from some Orthodox Jews who were upset about the, using the remains of people uh, that would be dug up and maybe used. And then other Native Americans have talked about this. Many people have said this is sacrilegious. And you, mm -hmm. cons you consulted your... My uncle. Your uncle. Your uncle, who was a, 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 an Orthodox rabbi. What, what did he tell you to, uh, I guess, give you permission to keep doing this work? Well, um, I think it was really a kind of opinion rather than permission. But when, what we're doing with ancient DNA is that we're taking skeletons from some people, some of whom may not have wished to be dug up. 
um, and uh, taking a little bit of their bone, turning it into powder, extracting their DNA and sequencing it. And you really have to think about the ethical status of doing that. You can imagine getting DNA from an ancient Egyptian, for example. It's very clear from the, what, the history and from the texts that we have and the remains they left behind that they definitely didn't want their ancient dead to be disturbed, and yet that's what perhaps people are doing. Um, and so you have to think about the respect for the dead and balance that against the positives that can come from uh, this type of analysis. And I think what my uncle said and what I felt there was very important for me was the following perspective. That is, the work has the, promote, the potential to promote understanding, to break down barriers, then that might counterbalance those other issues, although you should always weigh um, those two things against each other. For you, did it help you give yourself permission to do that work then? I think I always rethink it every time I do work, um, but I think that it was a helpful perspective to have. All right, sir. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, and I appreciate taking all the time you took to talk to me. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. David Reich was in Seattle speaking at Town Hall at the summit on Pike in Capitol Hill. You can also listen to an excerpt of this interview at my other podcast that I do with Town Hall. It's called In the Moment. Don't forget, I'd love to hear what you think about these podcasts. So write me, sscher at gmail.com. And as I hear every other podcaster doing, go to Apple iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast. Let me know what you think. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you. And we'll talk again soon.